0: Well, as I'm sure you're aware, we are in a series on the Gospel of Luke. And this week we come to the feeding of the 5,000 in Luke chapter 9. And The broad structure of the Gospel of Luke, if you just take a step back and look at it, it's, it's organized around three very important meals. The feeding of the 5,000, the Last Supper, and the meal on the road to Emmaus after Jesus' resurrection. And so our passage actually signals... Pretty much the end of Jesus' ministry in Galilee, even as he starts uh, to turn towards Jerusalem and the cross. All four Gospels include this event, when they don't always include all the same events. And they highlight the same basic details, like the five loaves and two fish, as well as that this event happened in a desolate wilderness area. So important is this event for Luke that immediately after it, Luke presents Peter making the foundational confession that is really the rock, the bedrock of the church. Jesus is the Christ of God, or as he says uh, in Matthew 16, same confession, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Well, last week we looked at the 12. Jesus' official witnesses sent out by Jesus, empowered by him with his authority to proclaim the kingdom of God and heal diseases and cast out demons, all of this done in Jesus' name. And I didn't mention this last week, but you see this a bit, that the 12 functioned somewhat like the spies in the book of Numbers, sent out to survey the land that God had promised to give Abraham and his offspring. So this initial missionary journey anticipated as well the the disciples' future work in the book of Acts as Jesus began to take back not just Israel but the world through the ministry of his people just as God had first promised to Eve and again to Abraham. And included in this first missionary journey was both the test of the disciples' faith in terms of trusting Jesus to provide for their needs, like Israel in the wilderness after the Exodus from Egypt, or in the case of the spies, that God really could and would take back Canaan from the Canaanites, as well as, as we see in this first missionary journey, the test of hospitality, as in would Israel receive the messengers Jesus sent to her, much like Rahab. Received the spies in Jericho and by consequence received the announcement of the kingdom and give their allegiance to its king or would they be like previous generations of Israel who rejected the prophets God sent to them well this takes us to our text uh, this is a famous text it's an incredibly important text we're in chapter 9 beginning with verse 10 on their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them in the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place." But he said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about five thousand men. And he said to his disciples, Have them sit down in groups of about fifty each. And they did so, and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. Then they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, twelve baskets of broken pieces. Well, this is the word, Lord, thanks be to Christ for it. Let's go again in prayer to him. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this word about your Christ, and we ask that He himself would give us eyes to see and ears to hear him through your spirit. And we pray all of this in his name as he taught us to do. Amen. Well, in verse 10, we read that upon their return, the apostles told Jesus about all they had done. And typically up to this point, Luke has referred to the 12 as disciples. But here he calls them apostles. And an apostle is literally one who is sent. That's what the word apostle means, a sent one. And in the New Testament, an apostle, as opposed to say a disciple, is an official servant, someone set apart and sent out by Jesus with his authority to announce his kingdom and his rule. So just as say Haggai or Amos held the unique role of being a prophet, so too the apostles with Jesus. It's why even though I, I do have authority in Christ's church as one set apart to preach the word and administer the sacraments, that's, that's why I wear the robe. It signifies uh, an, an office. I'm not an apostle. I don't teach my word. I teach the apostles word about Christ. And we're not told what kind of response the apostles had to their mission or Jesus' reaction to their news, though it's clear from the other gospel accounts that they had somewhat of a favorable reaction. And so, very much like the, the spies sent out the second time uh, to, to Israel, or to Canaan, they give somewhat of a favorable report. That is, they think Jesus can take the world. Even so, instead, we are told of not so much the news of their reaction, but that Jesus takes them and says, okay, and they withdraw to an area or to a town known as Bethsaida. Now, this is a little fishing town. Bethsaida actually just means house of fishing. And it's off the beaten path to the far north, not far from the Jordan River in a desolate, if not desert-like place. So when the crowds from chapter eight learn that Jesus was in Bethsaida, They followed him, and a disciple, of course, is one who follows Jesus. And Jesus, in turn, welcomed them and spoke to them. Literally, he was the prophet, teaching and preaching about the kingdom of God. And in turn, he healed their diseases, a sign that the kingdom of God had shown up in power in him. So if in the previous passage, God put Israel to the test of hospitality through the 12, here Jesus himself, is the good host welcoming everyone who comes to him god expected israel to be hospitable because he himself is hospitable and the ultimate host so love the lord your god with everything you've got and love your neighbor as yourself that's in response to the love god has shown in the hospitality He is given. So, our love of neighbor is predicated on what God Himself has done for us. So, the 12 then return to Jesus, and like a parent who has given his children uh, their, their first experience of responsibility, Jesus takes back up His work, continues to teach them and model for them preaching and healing. And we read in verse 12 that the day was wearing on. And and giving the idea that Jesus had been at this, this preaching and healing throughout the whole day. And the 12, and notice that Luke switches back from apostle to disciple here. They they tell Jesus to send the crowds away. This is akin to a friend telling you in your own home that you need to end your party and send your guests packing. So it's, it's more than... A little presumptive, and it's not you got to can't just think of it your own home. This is like being in in the king's palace and telling the king how he should run his own uh, party. So, whereas Jesus sent the twelve out to Israel as apostles, dependent on Jesus for their provision by way of the hospitality of others, here they want Jesus, the host, the kingly host, to send their people away to go take care of themselves. So their mindset has changed from that of apostles sent out in faithful dependence on God to disciples who think Jesus is incapable of filling His duties as a host. So they went from one confident group of spies to the group of spies that think the Lord can't take the Canaanites. After all, this is a crowd of Thousands of people, well more than 5,000 men uh, that are actually mentioned. They have very little resources. And as they say, we are in a desolate place. So this is the mindset of scarcity that was actually first raised by the serpent in Genesis 3. Did God really say he would take care of you? Is God really good? And it has been endemic to the human heart ever since. So just as Israel coming out of Egypt doubted, despite everything they had seen, they doubted that God could or would provide for them in the desolate wilderness. And in turn, they started to believe that they should go looking for food elsewhere, mainly back in Egypt where they were slaves. So here the disciples think the crowds need to fend for themselves because there is no one in this desolate, God-forsaken desert to provide for them. And what appears to be a statement of fact, right? And the scarcity mindset always presents itself as the realist position. In reality, this is really a, a replay of Genesis 3 and Jesus's temptation in the wilderness. So whereas sinful humans doubt God's goodness and provision, Maybe this, this God brought us out of Egypt into slavery to, into the wilderness to kill us. That's what Israel actually says, some of them. God provides a feast in the wilderness, or as, as David puts it in Psalm 23, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Now, as an aside, this is the very same mindset at work in secular modernity that fears that humanity can and will destroy the earth. That it's inevitable because there is no God and what happens on the earth is purely either accidental or material. But also that the earth cannot provide for everyone on it. It's a complete denial of God's sovereignty over all of creation and his promise to provide for his creatures that he made in Genesis 1. And as Paul preached in Lystra to pagans who mistook Paul and Barnabas for gods, he says, The God who made the heavens and the earth has not left you without a witness to him and has provided you with rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with good and gladness. So not just satisfying you with food, but he's actually giving you joy when you did not deserve it. So while there is such a thing as droughts and blights and fires and floods and whatnot, Almost always famines and starvation are caused by the wickedness of men. The wickedness of men. And at least in the Bible, God sent such things in response to human wickedness. Well, in response to the 12, Jesus said, you give them something to eat. So on the one hand, Jesus is further exposing their their scarcity mindset. You know, we've got five loaves and two fish and not much money. Fair enough. In the previous missionary journey, they had zero. They had zero resources, zero assets. But more so, Jesus was now testing the disciples' hospitality. And they completely failed the test. If, as Jesus said during the temptation in the wilderness by Satan, Man does not live by bread alone, but by the very word of God. And as John beautifully riffs on Genesis 1 in his own gospel, in John chapter 1, that Jesus is the word of God, through whom and for whom all things were made. What should his disciples do? Well, it's an important moment in the disciples' training. They do not actually feed the people of God. Jesus does. And despite previously being empowered by Jesus to preach the kingdom and to heal people and to cast out demons, they are incapable of feeding the crowd of thousands. And they could do nothing apart from Christ. And their future ministry, which this moment looks forward to and is actually training them for, is that of stewards serving at the master's table. Jesus is the host. It is his table. The men set apart to serve in His house, men like me who serve as pastors and elders, are really more like ushers who direct you to Jesus and as servers who pass out the King's food to His people. And that is what you should see when we celebrate the Lord's Supper here in a few minutes. The men who serve you are not the Lord's Of this house we are the servers this is not my pulpit that's not my table this is not my church it all belongs to the Lord now to be sure as Matthew 16 through 18 makes clear there is a component to this duty that calls for the guarding of the king's table and for right order like what we see with the Levites role In the tabernacle and the temple, not everyone is cleared to come to this table. But still, it is not the Levites or the pastor's table. It is the king's. And men like me serve at his pleasure according to his word. Well, verse 14 tells us there were about 5,000 men at this event. And Jesus had the disciples seat them in groups of 50. Well, this is not, as I've heard some modern commentators argue, a patriarchal move where only men matter and women and children are disregarded as if they were the only ones who ate. If anything, the previous sections of Luke have shown just how seriously God cares about women and children. No, the numbering uh, links back to passages like Exodus thirteen eighteen where Israel was led out of Egypt as if for battle. And again, Joshua 1.14, where on the eve of taking the promised land, women and children were left behind as the men of valor took up arms to go fight. So for example, in Matthew's account of this event, and that's Matthew 14.21, he takes the phrase, besides women and children, that phrase from Exodus 12.37, where it's, it was said there were 600,000 men on foot. That's warriors, right? Besides women and children. That's not disregarding women and children. That's telling you that they are fit for battle. And again, it's like Exodus eighteen twenty-one, where Moses divided Israel into groups of 1,000, 100, 50, and 10. Again, that's straight like what the Roman Empire did with their own numbering. Of their armies. And what we are meant to see is that Jesus is a new and better Moses leading his people in the wilderness, arranging them for battle as the kingdom of God is on the move and beginning to take back not just Israel, but the whole world. And in their preparation in this desolate wilderness, very much like Israel, Jesus, who is Yahweh come in the flesh, provides the bread of heaven, manna, to feed his people. That John in his gospel gives the added detail that this meal happened on a mountain gives further links to the meal in Exodus 24. Again, Israel in Sinai in the wilderness where after the covenant with God, between God and Israel had been confirmed, their marriage vows confirmed, Moses, Aaron, and the 70 elders representing Israel went up on the side of the mountain. They saw God like Isaiah saw God in Isaiah 6, and they ate with him. So as everyone knows, it's not a wedding without the vows and the meal. Right? You have to have the reception. It's a party. That's where the covenant is confirmed in, in the feast. So you see in Exodus 24. And if you pay attention to both testaments, a key part of worship and communion with God always Includes eating with him. Now the difference between Moses and Jesus is that Moses was dependent on God for the manna. Much like the disciples are used by Jesus to distribute the meal. But Jesus, well, he is God. He provides the manna himself. And as this meal looks forward to, he himself is the bread of heaven. And he describes himself as such in the book of John. Now all four gospel accounts highlight that this meal involved five loaves and two fish. And when details like this are repeated, they purposely link up with other stories in the Bible too. So this detail about the five loaves links up, I think, with David in 1 Samuel 21, who on the run for his life from King Saul, though David had been anointed as king already, He encounters the priest Ahimelech at the tabernacle, and in turn, he asks him for about five loaves of bread. The only bread available was the bread of the presence in the holy place of the tabernacle, though. So on the one hand, David does not have the right to this bread because only the priest could eat it. But because David's life anticipated the life of the Messiah, his actions were deemed as lawful so that he could take the bread. Now, the bread of the presence, if you didn't know, was to be perpetually before the presence of the Lord in the holy place in the tabernacle and then again in the temple. There were 12 cakes or loaves lined up in two lines. It was made fresh every Sabbath. And as you can imagine, those 12 loaves represented Israel. And the reason for the bread was that it pointed back to the manna in the wilderness and was a pledge of the covenant between God and Israel that God would always... Be faithful to Israel. That's, again, 12 loaves. And if she remained faithful, he would always take care of her. He would always provide bread for her. So Jesus was purposely replaying the life of David in this passage. And in turn, he doesn't just feed a small group of fighting men on the run with the holy bread of the presence. He does the far greater miracle of feeding 5,000 fighting men and their families too. But this moment, believe it or not, also links up with 2 Kings chapter 4, especially verses 42 through 44, where Elisha miraculously fed 100 men by way of 20 loaves of bread. And in that scene, uh, Elisha's servants, kind of like the disciples, they say, how can I set 20 loaves of bread before a hundred men, assuming that will, there's no way that will feed a hundred men. And Elisha just repeats his command to do it, and then he adds, according to the word of the Lord, they will eat, and they will have some left over. Elisha follows after the ministry of Elijah, of course, but Elisha, in many respects, was the greater prophet. Elijah was like a lone voice speaking for God in the wilderness against the kings of Israel, like say Ahab. Elisha, who followed after him, was surrounded by a company of disciples and prophets. In fact, he was the head of the school of the prophets. Elijah received God's Spirit, but Elisha received a double portion of the Spirit. Whereas Elijah performed one miraculous feeding, Elisha did two and on a far greater scale. So Jesus, like Elisha, feeds the 5,000 and really far more than 5,000, probably at least double that. And later, we'll follow it up with another miraculous meal with the feeding of the 4,000. Though John the Baptist didn't do any miraculous works, though he was miraculously born, he was the greater Elijah. And Jesus, who followed after John, was the greater Elisha, feeding not just 100 from 20 loaves, but again thousands upon thousands twice. This actually answers King Herod's question from verses seven through nine that we briefly looked at last week as he heard reports that Jesus might be a resurrected John the Baptist or Elijah or some other ancient prophet. Well, no, John is, uh, Jesus is not John the Baptist or Elijah. He's the greater Elisha. But what about that detail concerning the two fish? Well, I think this detail looks forward to the resurrected Jesus in John 21, where the disciples are out fishing, and from the shore, Jesus calls to them, children, do you have any fish? And they say no. And so like he did early in his ministry, he directs the disciples to cast their nets in a particular place, and they have a miraculous catch of fish. And at... At that first miraculous catch, if you'll remember, he told the disciples he would make them fishers of men. So this is a change of imagery from the Old Testament from being shepherds, which they would be, to fishers. That is, they're going to go not just after Israel, but after Gentiles too. And when the dis- disciples realized it was Jesus, and they make it back to dry land, they find him cooking fish over a charcoal fire with a side of So it's a meal of fish and bread, just like we see here. And the point is that through these disciples, through these men, Jesus will bring about a miraculous catch of people, both Jew, that is the bread, and Gentile, that is the fish. See, Jesus is the host. He is the one who provides for his people. He is the one who will bring forth a huge kingdom of Jew and Gentile together. And his apostles are the ones who will serve the food in his name and through whom he will bring forth this kingdom. Now, the language of verses 14 and 15 indicate that this was a festive meal, similar to what we saw uh, previously in Luke, at, at Levi the tax collector's house in Luke 5, and again in Simon the Pharisee's house in chapter 7. That is, the people were reclining as they ate. John in his gospel gives the added detail that this happened during Passover, one of the three commanded pilgrim, uh, pilgrimage feast days, or feast weeks, that Israel was to keep. And Passover, of course, commemorated the exodus from Egypt. So this meal not only looks back to the key salvation event of the Old Testament, which becomes the model of salvation all the way to Christ, but forward to the coming Passover at which Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, which is a greater Passover meal. This is why we do the Lord's Supper and not say a Seder meal. And he laid down his life as a Lamb of God and in turn brought forth a better exodus, a better salvation that totally conquered sin and death and brought forth the first fruits of the resurrection. Well, this meal has the same language of the Last Supper as well as the meal on the road to Emmaus. And in turn, what we see uh, happening in the early church in the book of Acts, same language, as well as what Paul repeats in 1 Corinthians 11. You will see and hear me do the same basic language here in a few minutes. Jesus took hold of the bread. He looked up to heaven and gave thanks. So whereas we almost always bow our heads, right? We just take that as how you pray. Bow your heads, please. For the Jewish people, they looked up to heaven, eyes open, because they were looking up symbolically to God. Then he broke the bread, gave it to his disciples, who in turn served the crowd. And the Lord's Supper has the added details of the cup of wine, of course, indicating that this is a meal of celebration. Enjoy, just like you would have at a wedding. But in both cases, Jesus gave thanks, and he took hold of the bread, he broke it, he distributed it, and in turn, took the wine, divided it among his disciples, and again, they distributed that. So we read in verse 17 that everyone ate and was satisfied. So in this wilderness with Jesus, in this desolate place, in this place of scarcity, God filled his people to the point that they were satisfied at a festive meal. And whereas Israel often grumbled against God's provision in the wilderness and longed for the food of slaves in Egypt, here the crowds were satisfied with what Jesus gave them. And it's very much like how God in the wilderness provided enough food on the sixth day of the week for um, Israel so that she could rest on the Sabbath. So here Jesus provided leftovers. 12 baskets of broken pieces. And the detail about 12 baskets certainly points to how God had kept His covenant and had faithfully provided for Israel and does even more so in Jesus. And he will show something similar with the feeding of the 4,000 with seven baskets of leftovers that points to providing enough for the world. The pattern of seven, of course, is six plus one, which is the pattern of creation. But it also teaches the disciples that Jesus, the host, the kingly host, will provide a huge bounty through His death and resurrection that, like the miraculous catch of fish, will far, far exceed their expectations. And He will do this work through them, through His disciples. So just as God conquered Egypt through the arm of Moses so too, through his disciples, he will take back the world. And this event, of course, anticipates what Jesus would do through his death and resurrection, but also how he would continue to build his people through the the proclamation of the kingdom and eating with God, or as we say in our shorthand now 2,000 years later, through word and sacrament. And if you consider Deuteronomy 14.23, for example, it's clear that one of the central purposes of tithing and Sabbath-keeping under the Old Covenant, and I think it's true of the New Covenant as well, and keep in mind, at least in the Old Covenant, once you had offered your tithe, which was always either an animal or a plant of some kind, you got to eat it. You got to eat it. Part of the central purpose of this was, was that through eating of God's provision that he had given to you and his hospitality, this is a direct quote, you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. So whereas many Christians assume we learn to fear the Lord our God through somber self-affliction, you better really dwell on your sin. You really better think about it. Or else God will just rub your nose in it. You know it's coming. You better do something about it. No, God intended Israel to learn the fear of the Lord by listening to His Word, doing what it says, and in obedience to that Word, partaking of the weekly, Sabbath, monthly, new moon, and yearly calendar events, pilgrimage feasts, of eating with God. So think about it. They ate with God Sabbath, New moon, three major feast days. Besides, There was more than three too. So for examples, all the meals previous to this one in the Gospel of Luke have been Sabbath meals. And they were all festive. And here, this, this is a Passover meal in the wilderness, and it too is festive. And why wouldn't it be? They are eating at the table of the king by his own invitation and by his own hand. So... What we are about to do here now in really just a few minutes is not unique and it's not innovative and it's not flashy in the world. And sometimes even Christians look at these, these means of grace like the Roman general Pompey looked at the Holy of Holies in Jerusalem after he conquered Jerusalem some 65 years before the birth of Christ. He walked into the Holy of Holies where he could not go and he said, that's it? This is it? There's nothing in here that's all there is okay and walk right back out this is the meal of the king king jesus he instituted this as a means of grace and what is foolishness to the world is the wisdom of god to those who love him and keep his commandments and as a minister of jesus christ this must be said i do not feed you because i cannot I do not heal you, because I cannot. I do not fix your problems, because I'm mired in my own problems. I offer you Jesus, the bread of life who has promised to heal, to redeem, to fix, and to resurrect. And what he offers in this meal is not an opportunity to beat yourself up and to be somber, though there is a place. Absolutely, there is a place to ask for the forgiveness of your sins. And he invites us to do that. Now, this is a God-given meal at the king's ta- table in the power of the Spirit that works in us in ways that he sees fit. So in my view, the most appropriate response to this meal is one of joy, or at the very least, enjoyment, of what God has done and the satisfaction that we have received in Christ given for us. So don't treat this like a funeral. To be sure, Christ died, but he's been raised. He's been raised. No, like the feeding of the 5,000, the king and his kingdom have come, and he continues. He continues to give in abundance. Well, let me pray for us. Our Father, you have provided all things in your Son and the power of the Spirit. We give you thanks for this word we have received, and we pray that it would produce fruit in us all, just as you have promised to do through your Son. And we pray all of this in his strong name, Jesus the Christ. Amen.